Hi, this is Samir Kaji, your host of the Venture Unlocked podcast. On this episode, I have the unique pleasure of chatting with Roger Ehrenberg, founding partner of IA Ventures. Founded during the global financial crisis, IA has established itself as one of the top early stage funds in the world, counting early investments in companies such as Datadog, TransferWise, and The Trade Desk. In this episode, Roger gives us a masterclass in fund management. He shares how IA thinks about strategy, LP relations, fund sizing, views on their discipline on ownership and valuation, and what new managers should prepare for. Now let's get into this episode to hear all of this and more. Roger, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Samir. I'm super excited. We're going to talk about a lot of different fun stuff, but before we get into that, I want to go into your background a little bit and your foray into early stage venture. You took somewhat of a non-traditional path in many people's minds in that you were in investment banking, you were in a hedge. Tell us a little bit about your journey early on and what led you to early stage venture. I wish I could say that it was some genius strategy that I had, you know, the 15-year foresight to know that I would be here today, but that was not the case at all. Um, you know, as you had said, I had been in capital structuring and sales and trading, and then ultimately, you know, ran a large trading business at Deutsche. And in 2003, 2004, had really kind of had a wonderful 17-year experience on the street, but was kind of kind of done. I felt like I was tired of the politics, and it had been kind of a a rough and tumble last year and working to spin out a bunch of managers from Deutsche Bank's trading platform. And there really wasn't another job in Deutsche or anywhere else on the street where I was really excited. So I just decided to effectively, you know, cut the best deal on my deferred comp that I could and have a fresh start without having anything to go to concretely. Um, I had dabbled um, in angel investing. I had made two angel investments while I was at DB. But without any great strategy, it literally was a couple of the people that had worked for me said oh, to friends of theirs that they had gone to HBS with, you should meet Roger. He knows a lot about technology. He's really entrepreneurial and, he, and he's got money. Maybe he'll write you a check. And so I, I, did, I did that twice. And when I left in late 04, I actually started spending a bunch of time with these companies and realized that, you know, building uh, kind of technology oriented early stage ventures felt very similar to building these very early quantitative trading teams that I seeded at Deutsche and ultimately felt like this was something I was really excited about and wanted to try my hand at. And so it was really then that I embarked on the strategy of using my own money to seed I, over the, that five-year period, 40 companies, and then you know networked like crazy to build a whole new set of relationships, not in my Rolodex at the time that I left the street. And I, one last thing I'll say that, you know, Fred Wilson was a good friend and, and mentor during that time. And he was a, a tremendous sounding board and a catalyst for me to really um, make a bunch of those initial connections in the venture space. You started angel investing right before the global financial crisis, I think, and then raised fund one smack dab during the financial crisis. You've written about thinking of venture business as a company and doing all the planning necessary to make sure that it's a long-term and durable business. What were the things that you saw in, let's call it 2008, 2009, that you saw as the opportunity? What type of firm did you want to build and how much planning went into before you raised Fund One? Interesting question. I don't know that I've been asked that question quite that way. So that's awesome, Samir. So the answer is a lot. A lot of thinking went into it. 
uh, I actually decided to firmly launch IA Ventures. I had, I was probably, you know, 30, 35 investments and four years deep into my being, you know, what are today called solopreneurs, right? Where I basically have just been running, running my own book. But, you know, I led six deals, sat on six boards. I was doing it professionally just with my own money. And then, you know, every... Every six months or so, I used to have lunch with Tom Gloser, you know, who used to be the CEO of Reuters and then the CEO of Thomson Reuters. And he and he and I would get together and we talk about kind of technology. And in our kind of end of Q1 2009 lunch, I flopped this idea of starting a venture firm that was effectively old style seed stage venture, really helping founders with company creation, getting to product market fit, pre-revenue, but with this laser-like focus on the stuff that I really knew best and, and thought represented a mega trend, which was this notion of big, big data and high velocity data, data in motion. And Tom thought the idea was great and said, hey, Roger, I'm, I want to be your first LP. You can market with the fact that Thomson Reuters is committed to your first fund. And so with that, I started to say, okay, well, maybe I'm really onto something here. And then spoke to a bunch of my you know, friends and mentors in the venture investing and founder world to just kind of in the same way that I recommend to RC stage founders that when they're getting ready to raise their series A, they just, they have a lot of conversations and it's not just when they're ready to raise, but way before they're ready to raise to kind of hone the story. And, and you learn so much about yourself when you're forced to tell and teach, which all those conversations certainly helped me in my thought process around what IA ventures should be. So the outgrowth of that was I knew my strengths and I knew my gaps, and I was extremely intentional on filling what I perceive to be one of my most significant gaps, which is while I am very quantitative, I am not an engineer by training. And so much of my thesis was based around this notion of hard technology problems involving data that I really wanted to find a partner who had that skill set, had that experience, had the background, but also shared my vision for this mega trend of company formation in and around this theme. And so back in that era, I had started a blog in 2006 called Information Arbitrage that became one of the more popular financial blogs in the world at the time. And I met tons of people through, through that blog, ranging from people like Howard Lindzen, who's now a close friend and co-investor in, in many companies, both Angel and in our venture lives, to leading venture capitalists across the globe. So I had this platform, I had this audience. So I wrote a blog post about what I was looking for in a partner for starting this firm, and I got a thousand responses. <laughs> and so I ran a process to winnow it down and basically did 20 interviews over the phone, 10 in person, five finalists, and those five wrote cases. And then I found the one I wanted, and that was my partner, Brad Gillespie. 
And fortunately, he wanted me as I wanted him. And we did a try to buy for the first few months where I just paid him out of my pocket as a consultant. And it was a three month deal. And after the first two months, we looked at each other and said, this is working. And he joined me full time shortly after the first close of IA. I mean, it's a great story. And team is such a critical part of building a firm. And we see so much partner conflict and dissolution. And the level of diligence that you went through in a thousand applications is staggering and going through that, but really understanding how important it is to get the right partner that's complimentary is something that we do preach all the time. Once you brought on Brad, you're raising fund one. I think the first close I read somewhere was $15 million. 17, but yeah. 17, yeah. yeah. So your check sizes, however, were more geared toward a larger fund. This is something that a lot of managers struggle with. You do a first close, it's a fraction of your total target. How do you think about, should you downsize your checks until you get to a bigger size? Or should you just write checks based on what the target is? Jeez, man, you're really asking the hard questions. I get asked this a lot. And I have to be honest, Samir, that part of what I say is don't practice what I preach necessarily, because what we did was incredibly gutsy. I'm not sure it was smart, uh, was smart in retrospect. So we closed on 17. The fund had 25 on the cover. So, you know, the expectation was we're in business, we want to be in market, we want to see deals with a checkbook, you know, we had a few things we had seen prior to the close that we wanted to write checks into. But at the same time, and this kind of gets back to your earlier question, we wanted to run a concentrated portfolio, and we, we were very ownership sensitive. So notwithstanding the fact that we were running this small fund, we wanted to own lots of companies, and we wanted to lead investments which was a very unusual thing for kind of micro VCs, which really wasn't a thing in late 2009. Emerging managers, micro VCs, big data, these were all relatively novel concepts back then. What we ended up doing, even with this high degree of kind of capital constraint, was to say, we will write first checks up to 750000 That was the hard cap. And when thinking through what might Fund One look like, I said, well... 25 plus recycling, 750, 20 to 25 portfolio constituents. They all wouldn't be 750 checks. Some would be smaller and then we'd have fallen. So we invested as if we were going to be a $30 million fund, 25 plus recycling. And what ended up happening is we had planted seeds for some of these institutional investors who wouldn't, and we didn't expect, would participate in our first close. In fact, I didn't even talk to them for our first close. You know, I, the first close was made up of, call it non-traditional investors, you know, strategics, Thomson Reuters, some proprietary trading firms, hedge funds, and kind of my, my VC GP mentors also invested. And then my money. So kind of brute force that first close, but then planted these seeds for the back half of 2010. And it was basically us telling them, here's what we're going to do. And we'll circle back and we'll show you that we did it. And then you'll decide if you want to invest or not. And so when we got to Q3 2010, it was like a, a giant wave had hit. LPs were now putting risk back on, not just puking risk out. Emerging managers were hot. Big data was scorching hot. New York was hot. And I had started this little crappy firm with a little crappy fund based out of New York that had led a handful of really interesting investments. 
ranging from the trade desk to simple. We were in meta markets. We were first check into Datadog. So when the institutions looked at us, they said, what? It just didn't look like anything else. Because again, we had like significant double digit ownership stakes in all our lead managed companies and we were leading deals. So, you know, we ended up having 85 million of institutional demand for our little $25 million fund, which is what precipitated us. And our, we had a hard cap in the document of 40, which we got an LP waiver to raise it to 50. So we took 50. The original LPs that had put in 17 ended up putting in another seven. So they went to 24. And then we had institutions ranging from Horsley Bridge to we were Michael Kim's first investment at Sendana to the Investment Fund for Foundations to Industry Ventures. It was just, it was a great group of institutions who really believed in the strategy, believed in Brad and me and believed in New York. You certainly made a lot of Fund One LPs very happy given the returns, but I'm curious, this often happens and you're right, you know, 2010 was certainly the early days. I mean, we called micro VCs, super angels. I mean, it was the very beginning of the shift in paradigm. But as you've raised, you've kept your fund sizes generally the same, about 160 million, I think the last two. This is fairly rare in that we see fund size creep all the time. Managers get more LP demand, raise bigger funds. Was there an intentionality around keeping your fund sizes at the 160? Was there ever conversation, hey, we're getting so much LP demand, we have the ability to invest bigger checks, should we raise the fund size? What's been the historical context and, and framework in how you guys have thought about it as a partnership? And does it remain this way in perpetuity? It's so interesting, Samir. In fact, our conversations were almost the exact inverse of what you said. To us, the growth has been painful, painful in the sense that it was, it was so funny. This is because we obviously can't hold an in-person annual meeting. What Brad, Jesse and I are doing is we're got, we have kind of seven principal LPs and we're doing one-on-ones with them. And so we had one this morning and it's an LP that, uh, and in a tremendous endowment that, has been with us since fund two. So they committed to us in 2011. And so our second fund was 105 million. Our third was 160. And then our, the fourth that we're investing out of now is 160. And this is kind of our steady state fund size now. But when we went from 50 to 105, we were scared to death. We're like, did we get too big? Oh my God, are we gonna be able to run the same strategy? It's just, it's so crazy, you know, to look back on it because, yeah, Fund One's been awesome. I mean, Fund Two is way better and it's twice as big, which is hard to fathom. And then Fund Three at 160, really what that's enabled us to do, which we, so we will not and have obviously had lots of opportunities to raise opportunity funds. That's not something that Brad, Jesse, and I will ever do. Nothing wrong with anybody else doing it, just for us. We like the forcing function of constraints. And we feel like if we had this other vehicle, our decision-making would get flabby and we would start to justify making investments with lower cash-on-cash criteria than we would if we were investing out of these monolithic funds. And so because of that, what what we decided to do as an adaptation was to slightly grow fund size, so to say 160, 
But when we think about 160, Samir, and also don't think of 160 as 160. Think of 160 as 190 with recycling, that we have a $120 million seed fund and a $40 million growth fund. That's effectively the way we think about it, where because of the symmetry among our LPs of our funds, we're able to do cross-fund investing very liberally in growth round scenarios. So we can set single position concentration limits for a given fund. An example might be a, a company like Komodo Health, which is a the original investment was out of fund two. And you know, we led seed A, B, and then C led by others. But you know, that was something where we were able to deploy higher levels of capital that would have overwhelmed fund two. So we actually did part of our kind of later stage round in fund three. Well, you've touched on something that I find fascinating, which is really around fund management and portfolio construction. There's two things in particular, and you and I think of even exchange notes on Twitter around math, fund math, and things like reserve modeling. But you mentioned the idea of recycling and getting to a point where you're over 100% allocated into companies. A lot of seed managers struggle with this, uh, given the uncertain timing of when exits are going to happen. The fact that for a small fund, 22 to 25% of capital goes toward things that are non-accretive, i.e. management fees, fund expenses. What are the tactics of getting to 100% invested when some of your exits may not happen until year four, five, or six, what are the things that people should be thinking about? It is a really, really, really hard problem structurally, just by virtue of the way funds are set up. And that's also, I think, why you see a lot of managers with promising companies raise opportunity funds for that exact reason. I'll kind of transparently share the learning progression with you. So fund one, 50 million, we had the opportunity to make a couple of super high impact later stage investments that we were deeply liquidity constrained with. And like we had deferred management fees. We had done all the unnatural things you can do before you can't do it anymore. And at that point, we weren't really comfortable doing cross fund because we felt like we didn't yet have the, even though our LPs would have let us do it, we didn't feel like we had earned the right to take a risk like that, even though we were super confident that it's not good money bailing out bad. So in fund one, we got dumb lucky. I'm just being totally honest. We had the opportunity to invest in the Trade Desk Series B. We could write a $3 million check into that round. We had already written four checks totaling 2.2 million into the company to that point in time. But we felt great about writing this check, which would have made trade desk 10.5% of fund one. But we didn't have liquidity. So we were sweating hard. What ended up happening is that Jeff Green closed the B, but left 3 million of capacity open for us because we had an M&A that was closing that would have generated the liquidity to enable us to do that. And what that ended up being was the sale of Simple to BBVA. And so we took a portion of those proceeds and plowed it into Trade Desk. And that Series B in Trade Desk was a 65X. To say that that was impactful is the understatement of the century. But then you get to kind of Fund 2 and Fund 3, where we have used cross-fund now on several occasions, so we don't have a recycling issue. The point being, 
It's something you can't control. You can go and say, okay, well, if I'm not comfortable doing CrossFund yet, then you can either just say no, be disciplined. And then once you generate recycling in that fund, go back and put money into those companies, even though you've started fund next. Or, you know, what some people do is they raise opportunity funds. Again, we resisted that. But I will acknowledge to you that it is very stressful because of the timing mismatch, especially with very early stage funds. One of the beneficial effects of us now having these kind of blended funds with, call it a quarter of these growthier investments, is those are likely to generate recycling dollars sooner that can be used for the younger companies in those portfolios. So those funds can become increasingly independent and actually reduce the need to do cross-fund because of the growth investments generating liquidity to do recycling in that same fund. Right. That makes a ton of sense. Another related question with regard to portfolio construction, most funds have a stated target of their ownership, the number of companies, the valuation targets. How do you think about the balance between staying very disciplined to those ownership and valuation targets versus on occasion flexing that discipline when you have high conviction? And there's multiple views on this. Um, Some people say, well, if you do it and it seems like it's happening over and over again, it's strategy drift. Others are saying, well, you have to know when to flex and you can't be overly dogmatic. How do you guys think about it as a partnership? And are there examples where you've done that and it's worked or it hasn't worked? You're right. In an environment like the one we're in today, where the world is awash in very early stage capital and decision cycles are compressed by virtue of deal FOMO and feeding frenzy, something necessarily has to give because you can't win everything, even in companies that you have deep conviction in, but you don't have enough time necessarily to either develop the conviction to put down a lead term sheet or the deals run away from you. The thing that we are not willing to flex is capital risk. So we have been on occasion willing to flex ownership in exchange for maintaining capital discipline, being in those companies where we feel founders and ideas and markets are ultra compelling that we would have wanted to develop the conviction to lead, but we couldn't because of timing. So we are seeking to mitigate team risk through capital discipline. And because of the size of our funds, we are able to invest more at higher prices later and still generate the kinds of cash on cash returns that would make for a, you know, multiple fund returning investment Because if you think about it, Samir, if there's one thing that we've learned in our 11 years of being in business is that great companies can get way bigger and be way more valuable than we ever could have imagined. If you had told me today that Trade Desk could be a $25 billion company, I would have said, you're crazy. If you had said to me that Datadog could have been a $25 billion company, I would have said, you're crazy. But the reality is, is we have those companies and several others in our portfolio that we believe can be that and more. And so when looked at through that lens, Let's say we're not able to get to the 15 to 20% ownership at seed that we more often than not have gotten. Let's say we end up getting 8% of a company at seed. Well, if we're paying up for the A or the B and it's one of those companies, who cares? <laughs> right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So we would rather apply the capital discipline to say, hey, this gives us the opportunity to really get to know this team better to build this deep relationship, to see them execute. And if it turns out that, hey, 
this would have been one of those deals that we would have wanted to have let it seed, but we couldn't because it moved too fast. We weren't there first or whatever. Then they will be our advocates for investing more to make it an even more important position for us in subsequent rounds. And that's exactly the way it's played out. I think it is very consistent with a lot of the folks that I've talked to that have been ultra successful. The other thing that I talk to managers a lot about and is around pattern recognition. And, you know, the way I sort of view it is it's your internal algorithm that's based off your experiences, which you've seen in the past. I'd love to get your view on pattern recognition in terms of the pros and cons. So on one side, it seems like you do need that. You do need those reps. But unchecked, it seemed like some of those internal algorithms could become flawed over time with false positives and negatives. Things change over time. What is your view on the importance of pattern recognition? And do you adjust your internal algorithm constantly? What, what do you guys do as a partnership? We are constantly recalibrating our approach. It's not like it's a daily, weekly, or monthly thing, but it's certainly something that we seriously take stock of annually. And it's something we talk about all the time. But I think, you know, our our deep-seated view is that you can't t- turn too many knobs all at once or you're not going to learn anything. You need to figure out which variables you want to fix and then flex a variable and run an experiment for a long enough period of time so you have good data. And so for us, one of the biggest adaptations in fund four versus three is that, you know, I would say we're probably going to do fewer pure science bets that take a really long time to determine if you product market fit, that there are obviously great companies to be built there. It's just not clear that we're the right people to back those companies, given our fund size and our relative strengths. And like when I talk about, you know, capital constraints and max check size, we definitely allowed ourselves on certain occasions to write some bigger first checks in fund three that the funny thing is I think a bunch of those companies are going to be wildly successful, but it just, they didn't feel like they were great IA deals. And so Brad, Jesse, and I talk about this all the time and we are, you know, in the midst of running a particular set of experiments right now. And I would say we're pretty, pretty pleased with results so far. So shifting slightly to fundraising, which LPs and discussions around what type of LPs to go after. You're in a very unique position. You had, I think you mentioned earlier, 85 million of interest from institutionals in Fund One. My suspicion is right now you'd be multiple times oversubscribed. And the fact that you've kept your fund sizes small make it very access constrained. How do you think about LP selection? Does it value add what they represent? And what are the type of things LP should be aware of when working with GPs in terms of driving some type of real value outside of capital? That is a topic, Samir, that we spent a tremendous amount of time working on in 2000, well, always, but in particular, 2018 was the year that we took a deep breath And we said, what do we want the next 10 to 15 years to look like in terms of the partnership, in terms of our LPs, in terms of how we live and work? It was an amazing series of conversations. And one of the things that came out of that was we really wanted greater concentration around our LP base and greater conviction 
around those LPs who we were going to commit to and who would commit to us as very long-term partners. And so we came up, you know, with a set of criteria of how to really evaluate what kinds of LPs generically and more specifically would be the right long-term fit for us. And it was some intersection of shared missions where we felt great about making money for the things for their investors, whether it was a single investor in the case of an endowment or multiple investors in the case of a fund of funds or a foundation. What is the LP's commitment to the venture asset class? So we asked for a tremendous amount of data from both our existing LPs and new potential LPs. Tell me how much you invested in venture every year since you've been investing in the venture asset class. So what we really wanted to see was, are they cyclical opportunists or secular committers? Because obviously, we are not looking to have tactical asset allocators on our LP cap table. And then the third, which is also extremely important, is what is the culture of the organization? How do they deal with their partnership? How do they deal with succession planning? How do they deal with generational change? Because, you know, we've had firsthand examples. And none of these things have been disruptive to us, but we've we've witnessed them where, you know, leadership transitions and generational changes have been handled badly. And we don't want that. <laughs> you know, our, our goal for our LPs, forget about adding value. We don't want them detracting value. We want, at the very least, do no harm. And at the very best, they help challenge our thinking. And they are true partners to us. And given the performance that we've had, we felt we had earned the right to have the LPs that we wanted. And ultimately, you know, the group that we have today, we're super proud of, super grateful for. And each one of them, in a particular way, pushes our thinking. And that, to us, is what a great LP is. I'm curious, and this is just a follow-on question to that, you presumably went through a process where you made the determination that some of the folks that had been in the fund may not be aligned for the long term. How tough were those conversations? I mean, divorcing LPs or not letting somebody back in the fund, I would suspect it would be pretty hard. People generally understanding, did they understand it or how did that go? Everyone understood it because it was, we were extremely transparent about the process we asked the same questions of all the existing LPs. No one was disadvantaged, let me put it that way. Were these hard conversations? Sure. You never like to make somebody unhappy, and we knew everyone was going to be on. Whoever didn't get to continue was going to be unhappy. The silver lining is we've made them a ton of money. So, okay, that's good. And we're going to continue to be partners for a long time because we're still managing these portfolios. But in terms of the way they handled it, it ranges from growth mindset, right? The best response is, wow, super disappointed, would really like to understand what we could do better in the future. Obviously, you know, we aspire to be better. We would aspire to continue to invest with you. If there's any way in the future that you would consider us, that would be great. But most importantly, can you give us input that we can take to heart to be better? That's a great answer. The alternative answer which we heard only one time, was, oh my God, I can't believe it. This has never happened. Everyone always wants us to be bigger, not smaller. It was all about them. There was no desire to learn. It was an opportunity for them to vent their frustration at our decision, which ultimately isn't very helpful. We weren't going to change our decision anyway, but then we really weren't going to change our decision. <laughs> right. And then you had a group in the middle, which were just like, wow, disappointed. Jeez, disappointed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. kind of like you had growth mindset, you had negative, and then you had <laughs> the middle. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate the transparency, Roger. I'm going to end with two quick hitter questions. One's from Twitter. And the question from Twitter is, for anyone that is breaking into VC, brand new, what is the one quality that you think is non-negotiable for that manager? Any one word answer is going to sound trite and stupid, but transparency. One of the big knocks against this industry, and I hate it in certain of my peers, is people aren't respectful and transparent about how they feel about whether it's somebody pitching the firm, not understanding what their motivations are, or even after you've invested, what, what are your thoughts about liquidity? Just like being able to have open, honest conversations with people at any level, I think is absolutely essential to building trust. And if you're not transparent, you can't build trust. So to me, that's job number one. And I will tell you, it sounds easy. It's not easy. And I would say a very significant percentage of the investor universe does not practice that. Transparency has been an age-old problem in venture investing and just private equity in general. The last question I have, and this is the question I ask all VCs, knowing what you do now, 11 years into it, what is the one thing that you've learned that you wish you knew going into starting a firm that you would tell an aspiring fund manager? What should they expect? You better have incredible, an incredible ability to handle delayed gratification. You know, probably the hardest transition for me from the trading floor to the venture world is that they're on opposite ends of the liquidity spectrum. And it's really hard to know if you're any good at this until you've been in it for a relatively long time. And I'll tell you, sitting here now, 11 years later, I still have imposter syndrome. I still don't fully consider myself a VC as somebody who didn't grow up in the business. I've come to it. I've done reasonably well. This is not humble brag. This is 100% the truth. I don't feel the same way that peers I know that grew up in this industry and have been in it for longer were separate from performance. There's just something about it. It's a, it's a very hard business because of the fact that you like your personal scoreboard is unknown for such a long time. Whereas when I was on the trading floor, you know, I knew really quickly. Was I good or did I suck? Was I smart today or dumb? Did I advise this client correctly or not? Here, it's just such a long feedback cycle. You just need interminable patience. And one of the problems with the industry is that, and I think why it becomes so insular, is once you, if you've started a firm and you're starting to see the payoff and then you bring younger people in, I've observed that for some people, it's very hard to give up the economics and the ownership because it was so hard to get there in the first place. So which is what when you get these like sclerotic partnerships with something I was deeply committed to not making that mistake. And in fact, now, you know, Brad, Jesse and I are equal partners. Roger, really appreciate the time. This was great, great insights. And I really appreciate you being on the show and, and being so transparent. Well, thanks so much for having me, Samir. This was, uh, this was an awesome conversation and uh, hopefully it's useful to some people out there. Thanks for listening to our episode with Roger. To learn more about him and IA Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts, where you'll find detailed notes from this show. While you're there, hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.